0: Okay, so hermeneutics is where we are. Are we recording, uh, Jesse? Are we recording? Okay, cool. Hermeneutics is where we are, and we are wrapping... Oh, thank you, Thomas. We are wrapping this one up. So this is going to be my last class on hermeneutics in this series, okay? Now, if you need to go back and check the rest of them, this is like the hermeneutics course that we've been going through this time. The way I've kind of set these classes up is they're they're all fire hose (laughs) classes. Here's like... All the topics. Here's all the big points. We didn't really do deep dives on each type of literature, although we could, but I just I don't want to spend a ton of time here. I want to give you just enough to where you have a solid understanding, but not a PhD. Like that's kind of where I'm going for here. So if you want more information on these topics, I can recommend you some great books. In fact, one of the most stellar hermeneutics books out there that's very easily attainable. Is called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, and it's by a guy named Robert Plummer. Dude is a freaking genius, okay? So he reads, every morning he wakes up and reads his Greek and Hebrew for his devotions in the morning. You know, like, he's a genius. He's incredibly good at this. He knows etymology better than, I would argue, the vast majority of scholars in the United States right now. And he's a very on-mission kind of guy. Like, he travels and teaches in underground seminaries around the world. Like, super cool dude. Um, but he was my hermeneutics professor whenever I was going through seminary, rock solid. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, and it's by Robert Plummer. And it's, you know, it's 40 questions. They ask a question, and then they answer it for a few pages. And then they ask a question, and they answer it for a few pages. It's a great book. I don't know if you can get it on audio format. Does anybody know the answer to that? I don't know if you can get it on audio format, but the book itself is, you know, not super expensive. Um, he, he's a Southern Baptist dude at Southern Seminary in Kentucky, you know, So he's got some, some things that he <laughs> had some fun moments with him in a few of my classes. But uh, he's super smart, way to go, um, and I would recommend that book wholeheartedly. He also has, for those of you that are interested in diving into Greek just a little bit to have fun, um, he has a Greek podcast where they take one verse every day. It's called Daily Dose of Greek. And then he exegetes that verse, or he translates <laughs> that verse um, from the original languages. And so, if you wanted, and he also gives away the Greek, the intro to Greek that I took and paid money for in seminary, he gives that away for free online too. So you can like go and take it. Now, be warned, it is not easy. Okay, Uh, Greek in seminary is kind of the purging class. Like, are you gonna get a master's of divinity, or are you gonna get a master's of arts in theology? Because the M.A. is like, mm, no Greeks, no languages. You know, that's the, it's the deciding factor what degree you're going to get. So it's not easy, but it's still fun to do. All right, <clears throat> there's my spiel at the beginning. What are we doing today? We're studying what? What is this called? Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. And what is the proper definition of the word hermeneutics? What, what is hermeneutics? What are we trying to do? Interpretation of the Bible. Say that louder, Kelly. Properly study the Bible. Why? Why do we need hermeneutics? What's important about it? What's What's the reason that we should study how to interpret the Bible? You're way off, real fast. That's right. So, exactly, we need to know what's true. We need to know how to read and interpret that truth correctly. Um, So, just to give you a couple of examples, um, we talked about hermeneutics being the, the the illustration for hermeneutics is a pair of glasses, right? Um, everybody has a lens that they view the Bible through, and as a result, um, if you are using the wrong lens, you're going to have the wrong interpretation, or if you're using the wrong interpretation, you're in all kinds of trouble. So for example, whenever I first became a Christian and had like barely any idea how to read the Bible, I had some friends of mine that practiced Bible roulette. Do you all know what Bible roulette is? Who knows? Raise your hand if you know what Bible Roulette is. Okay, so Bible Roulette, Kelly knows. You've probably had some friends that did this too, but Kelly never did it. Kelly never did that. Um, Bible Roulette is that moment where you take the Bible and you go, what's the Lord saying to me today, right? And then they read that one verse. And, well, what if that verse that you land upon says, and then Judas went and threw himself headlong in a field. Then Judas went and killed himself. And you're like, oh, is this what the Lord is telling me to do? And then you go, ruh- 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 ruh. what you do, do quickly. Like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, like, that. now we're in trouble, right? That's a poor interpretive mechanism. This is why we got to study hermeneutics. This is why we got to dig in and make sure that we're reading and interpreting the scriptures correctly. Yeah, we, we want to have systems, um, but we don't want. So yes, we do want to have systems of interpretation and general rules. And if y'all remember when we were talking about interpreting the Old Testament, um, we talked about um, authorial intent. Do y'all remember that? What's authorial intent? Do y'all remember that? The definition is in the name. What's authorial intent? The intent of the author. Thank you, Ashley. Um, The intent of the author, right? But what happened in Isaiah 53? Do you remember? Isaiah 53, Isaiah is prophesying about the birth of Jesus. Except when Isaiah is writing Isaiah 53, he don't know he's prophesying about the birth of Jesus. He thinks he's prophesying about somebody else. But then Paul in the New Testament and the others in the New Testament confirm the prophecy and they say, No, no, no. It was actually about Jesus. That's why we say authorial intent is very important, but we also have another principle that governs authorial intent, which is what? Y'all remember? Scripture interprets Scripture, right? The king of Bible interpretation is the Bible. And so if we're not looking first to the Scriptures, our rules can get out of whack and get us into trouble real quick. So it is kind of a big cacophony, and that's why I said... This is, we're not deep diving hardcore on any of these things just yet. This is a general overview, and I want to kind of end today with us having a, an idea of where the Bible came from, okay? So the Bible is, is two testaments, right? There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. What's, what time period is the Old Testament? Do you all know offhand? It's before who? Before Jesus. And the New Testament is what? Jesus and then forward, about how many hundred years? Less than 100, right? Because it's the apostles. The New Testament was written by the apostles. And what's the significance of the apostles? Apostle means sent one. And to be an apostle means that you were sent by Jesus. Now, not all the books in the New Testament were written directly by the apostles, but they were written by people closely, close to the apostles as well. And we'll talk about that later. So have you ever heard the expression, the canon of Scripture? Have you all ever heard that expression before? If you ever heard that, that means that Scripture is is canon. It's closed. It's sealed. Uh, and the word canon, where we get that from, is, is measuring rod. So when somebody says the canon of Scripture, what they mean is the 66 books that make up the the Christian Bible today. Now, the Roman Catholics have extra books in there. We talked about this a little bit last week. What are they called? The Apocrypha, we live in South Louisiana, so everybody's got that word right away. Where I'm from, nobody would know. (laughs) Like, nobody would have a clue. But there's such a heavy Catholic presence down here, and we'll talk about that a a little bit later. Okay, so for Protestants, okay, for, for Protestant Christians, we believe that the canon is not authorized, okay... Rather, it is authoritative. There's a difference there. It's not authorized, it's authoritative. Now, we've talked a lot about how the Roman Catholic Church believes that the church has authority over the Scriptures. Protestants do not work that way because the Bible is the word of God, right? If the Bible is the word of God, then that means that the Bible has authority over the church, not the church over the Bible. Are you all following with me here? This is why whenever the Reformation happened, The Catholic Church could add a few extra books to the Bible that confirmed their theological biases that that had metastasized and grown into some serious issues over the time. They could add those books without there being too much of an issue because they believe that the church exists authoritatively over the Scriptures. Protestants are not exercising authority over the Bible. We are looking to the Bible and saying, this has authority over us. Are y'all following me? Cool. Now, how did we get there, though? So how do you do that? How do people, when they collect all of the scriptures, say, these look like they have authority and we will hold fast to them? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Canonization is simply the recognition of authority, not the granting of authority. It's the recognition of authority. Are you all following? This This is important pieces. Don't lose this. Now, for the vast majority of people, you don't really think, if you were brought up in a Christian church, you, Christian family, you don't really think about where the scriptures came from until you maybe you meet a skeptic, right? Or you meet a, a dyed-in-the-wool hardcore Roman Catholic. There's not many of those down here I've found, though. I'd say that the vast majority of the Catholics that I interact with here are what I'd categorize as cultural Catholics. They might not even necessarily know what they believe. But about five to about 5%. I'm going to say about 5% are like Catholic. Like, you know, they know stuff, they do their digging and their research, they believe all the way down deep, but only about, I'd say about 5%. Anyway, let's talk about the Old Testament. Now, straight up honesty, we don't have a lot of the details about exactly how the canonization of the Old Testament happens. But what we do have is. Their historical guarding of the Old Testament, and you can go and read and research about that. They were very meticulous about the copying of the pages and the maintaining of the scriptures and all those different things. And I have some different verses, but I don't want to spend a lot of time looking those up. I have my notes available for anybody who wants them. I can send these to you. Um, No problems there at all. It's like two pages worth of an outline. And so I'm trying to make sure that I get through this today. And so I'm not going to be pulling every single thing out here. But we do see in the New Testament, somebody pull up Luke 24, verse 44. Luke 24, verse 44. Because what we're going to see there is Jesus confirming the threefold Old Testament canon. So Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Can somebody read that for me? All right, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's the threefold Old Testament canon. So we see Jesus right there. Like, easily, you can go right away to the New Testament and say, hey, Jesus confirms that all the Old Testament is Scripture. And that's the classic separation that the Pharisees had practiced, actually, of the division of the Old Testament. So you have the Law, um, you have the words of Moses, prophets, and you also have... the psalms, the poetry, okay? You see all those different pieces included in there. So I would think the, like Chronicles and Kings and things like that, I I would think that that's going to fall into law. But it's historical. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That's technically historical narrative. Um, I don't have, it's been a long time since I took this part of this class, Um, I don't have exactly the way that the threefold canon was divided up, but um, it is in a certain way. You can look up the charts online. Be wary of Google, but you can try for that later on. Um, Jesus also rejected the Sadducees who held to less authoritative books. Okay, So you had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. Remember all that time that they're interacting with each other? The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't. Um, the Sadducees held to a couple of extra-canonical works uh, that the Pharisees did not hold to. Jesus continuously demonstrated that he was kind of on the side of the Pharisees in their interpretation um, and went against them whenever they were wrong, obviously. And then the Sadducees held to some extra things that weren't there. If you want to look up a little bit more about that, you can write down in your footnotes Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. I don't want to go too far into that right now. Oh, um, Josephus... Y'all remember who Flavius Joseph, Josephus? Who was that guy? Do y'all remember? Anybody? Roman Jewish historian, that's right. And so he wrote down a lot of cool things for us to be able to hold town to. Um, Josephus claimed that the Jewish canon was settled around 400 years before Christ. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that the Jewish canon would be settled 400 years before the coming of Jesus? because that's thank you Peter. Oh, Peter's on fire today because that's where there was 400 years of silence, right? Before the coming of Christ. So they they closed, they settled the canon down 400 years before Jesus came on the scene because there was no more prophets. There was no more prophets showing up. So they had to All right, these are the writings. This is what we've got going. Okay, here we go. Yes. <laughs> Yes, it it absolutely does. So um, these are the words of Josephus here. It's true, our history has been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but has not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there has not been an exact succession of prophets... Again, uh, since that time. That's the words of Josephus. If you want to look that up, that's from his book Against Apion, um, 1, 38 through 42, just if you want to go find it. You can have fun with that. Now, the New Testament, we've actually got a lot more information about the formal recognition and canonization of the New Testament. The early church had rules, and y'all can write these down if you want to. The early church had rules for the recognition of the authority of the New Testament scriptures. First, is it written by or closely tied to an apostle? Is it apostolic? Okay, that's rule number one. If it was written by or it can be closely connected to an apostle, then boom, we got one check mark. The next one was, is it widely if not universally recognized throughout the church? That's, that's their second rule. That was the rule of Catholic. Um, they use the word Catholic not like we use the word Catholic. They use the word Catholic to express what, Wade? That's right. The Catholic, the Universal, the United uh, Church that followed Jesus. It's not the recognition of the uh, religion necessarily itself. <laughs> <laughs> Cheaters, well, I guess. If you write the history books, you get to do whatever you want. And also, is it so? Is it apostolic? Is it universally accepted? Catholic or and lastly is it orthodox meaning is it not in contradiction to any recognized apostolic doctrine every now and then you see somebody who thinks they're smart and they pop up and they say well why don't we recognize the gospel of Thomas you guys ever heard of that before Thomas wrote the gospel. Uh, Y'all ever heard that statement before? Well, first off, (laughs) there's some crazy stuff, like about how I think Mary was resurrected in the Gospel of Thomas, like wild, wild stuff in there that's obviously not orthodox. And also it says something about women being slaves, literal slaves of their husbands. So sure, y'all want to accept the Gospel of Thomas. No, heck no. Obviously it's not orthodox. There's some serious problems inside of that. Wild stuff. So no, of course we don't want to accept those pieces. And there's a lot of extra books like that as well. So uh, they want three things. Is it apostolic? Is it universally accepted? And is it orthodox in understanding? The first published list that matches our 27 book, so it's 27 books in the New Testament, the first published list was written down by Athanasius In AD 367. That's the first time we see the list of the New Testament canon come on the scene. 367. Y'all like So, 350-ish years post-Jesus is when the first written list of the New Testament canon is recorded. Is able to be discovered in history. Now... We know also that it was probably written down way before that, but what was going on in the first two, three hundred years of the church's life? They were running for their lives, you know, like they didn't have time to say, wait, we must meticulously do this. They were like, don't let them stab you! And they were running, you know, they were running as fast as they possibly could. And so, of course, there was a little, a little issue with those kind of things. <clears throat> now, I want to go through just a real fast summary of the process for the canonization of the New Testament. and Y'all can write this down if you want to. But also, don't forget, I have these notes for you, and they're available to you. I can send them to you at any point. Um, So all the New Testament books were written approximately between A.D. 45 and A.D. 100 somewhere around in there. AD 45 and AD 100. They were collected and read and distributed throughout the church from the point that they were written because you remember Paul said, read my letter and then send my letter to all the other churches so that other people can read it too. They were distributed from the time that they were written until about AD 200. So we've got this little window of about 200 years, 150 years, 200 years, something like that where all these writings are being distributed around and being accepted or being rejected there's some false ones popping up here and there and the church is you know getting rid of those as that happens they were examined and then compared and further checked against the suspicious writings from about AD 200 to AD 300 and then the church agreed between A.D. 300 and A.D. 400. Does everybody so you got kind of those, that process of about 400 years or so in the early church days where they're thinking through, trying to figure out the New Testament, and not they're not granting authority to these books. Remember, what are they doing? They're trying to recognize the authority. They're trying to say, is this Scripture? And Paul says very clearly, I think it's in one of the Corinthian letters, take my writings and the other scriptures, he's saying clearly, my writing is scripture, so they knew this as well about themselves, and they eventually were able to get all this stuff done inside of, you know, 400 years. <laughs> but that is a little stressful, right? It took 400 years? That's a long time. So obviously, one of the biggest reasons, like Landon said before, is because, well, they're, they're running for their lives. Also, they did not have the internet. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you wanted to communicate with somebody in Africa and you lived on the southern cusps of Europe or wherever and you wanted to get a note to them, you're going to try probably five times before the writer doesn't die on their way there. You know, like it's you're you're doing your very best to try and have. Imagine putting together a church wide meeting. We got enough problems just getting everybody to show up on Sunday morning. Can you imagine having representation from every christian church throughout the world show up at a meeting and pick a canon like that's crazy that would have been incredibly difficult for them to do writing letters writing communication to people took years sometimes for things to go through it took a it took a long 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 time but what's that that's right be like oh there's a council happening last year. God, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> I wish I would have known. But that, that is the things that, some of the things that they were dealing with very much. Um, so New Testament documents were recognized as authoritative and circulated amongst the churches by probably, I'd say, about A.D. 100. That was already happening. And from the earliest of Christian citations... It's clear that they understood that there was a canon. If you go all the way back to AD one hundred and you read early church father writings, you can see that they're referencing scriptures. Now they didn't have the first John chapter one, verse twenty that didn't show up until way later. But you could see that they're quoting and they're referencing letters from different writers. You could see that there was an understanding, that there was an authoritative canon of God's Word for them to hold fast to and use in order to bring the world about. Now, everybody in the world has a Bible now. Well, not everybody in the world, but the vast majority of people who have access to contemporary technology in some form, fashion, or another have a Bible now. What changed what, what, what changed that gives us such an easy point of access? The first thing to change was what? Back in the 14, 1500s. What was that, Johnny? The printing press. The printing press was the fuel of the Reformation, baby. All of a sudden we could produce Bibles on a volume because up to that point, before the printing press showed up, if you wanted a copy of the Bible, what would you have to do? Write or pay somebody to write it. And it was a lot of meticulous, meticulous, meticulous work. Printing press shows up around 14 And they started mass producing Bibles Well mass producing They were still incredibly, incredibly expensive The real industrial printing press didn't show up Until probably the 1800s Where high volume could be produced And even then it still took 100 years For that technology to become readily available To where we live in the world now Which we all have printed Bibles that no one reads Where do we read the Bible now? on your phone, <laughs> you know, on on the internet, right? You know, we very few of us interact with the actual pages on the book anymore, which should give us a little bit of word of caution because translations can be adjusted and um, altered, but, you know, we'll get into that another time. All right. We can see that there was an implicit canon around, an implicit, implicit means implied. Everybody recognizes that there was some type of a canon around the year A.D. 100, um, They didn't have printed presses yet, they didn't have internet, so honestly, it makes sense that it would take them about 400 years or so, and the way that they had to communicate like by horseback and all those different things. So now, but think about this for just a second. So they had a council where they all got together and said, these scriptures are the words of God, and they all agreed on it, and they agreed on 27 books. Think about this with me for just a second because we, in our world with the internet, it's difficult for us to think this way. But you and another dude who thinks absolutely nothing like you, who comes from a completely different culture in the world, who has completely different habits and routines and societal structures and everything, from the other side of the planet, you both get together and you say, Hey, we agree on the 27 books. That's profound. That in and of itself is miraculous, that all these churches with, and like I'm telling you, it's very difficult for us to understand this today because the people who are the most different from us would probably be uh, Asia, people in the Asian regions. Most of the West is pretty similar in its culture at this point in world history. But before this, it was very different. Every tribe had a slightly different vibe. They all, they all lived in different ways, and they all got together and said, yes. These 27 books are the words of God. Yes, these. That's mind-boggling right there. It took 400 years. Okay, I got it. But the Lord did miraculous work, and it was perpetually implied that the canon of Scripture existed from the times that the writings were down and forward. Do you all have any questions about this so far? And why did they survive? Because they were from God, were from God but God used the um, torture and subjugation of His people to see that they were the see that they would survive. See, this is the study of human history. It's amazing. God used His people's oppression to see that the Scriptures were were running rampant throughout the world. They had to write them down. They had to copy them as fast as they could. They had to distribute them as quickly as they could because at any given moment, somebody could show up and burn them and their whole family down and their house and everything could be lost. You could see how their strategy had to be rapid growth, rapid expansion, move as fast as you can. It couldn't be hunker down and hope the storm blows over. That strategy doesn't work. God used the oppression of his people in order to see that his words would go out through the world. And during that 400 years of silence, this is always fun to say, what was God actually doing in the 400 years of silence? He was building the Roman Empire. Why? Well, to use the Romans as a form of oppression in order to... to Rome was Goliath to Jerusalem as Goliath was to David back in the day. I think that's true, too, to God's people. He needed the roads. He needed the roads. The trade languages, the trade routes, the the rites of passage. If you were a Roman citizen, you could go anywhere you wanted. And some of the church members were. They could travel throughout the Roman Empire distributing and, and teaching and bringing copies of these letters and all kinds of stuff. Like The rapid expansion of the early church was due to oppression and silence from God. And God was always working, always working. Ah, Okay, sorry. Yep, took too long on that. All right, so God was silent for 400 years, but is he ever silent? No, he's always working. He is not silent, and God desires to communicate with his people, amen? And so for us, as a people who are literate, The way that God communicates to his people is through the written word. So God put 66 books together in one book that we may have and distribute to all so that they can read and understand and hear and believe upon the Lord Jesus and that there is a way to be saved. Hmm, Excuse me. All right. I want to run through the apocrypha real quick. This shouldn't take too long. Um, Roman, Catholic, Eastern, Orthodox. um, That's because this was pre-schism, I think. Wait, wasn't this pre-schism? When was the schism between the Eastern Orthodox? They have extra ones too. They have more than just the Apocrypha? Yeah, they have the first and second books of Enoch But when was the schism? When was the schism? 1054. Okay. So definitely before Reformation. I get confused on some of those older things. So anyway, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, they got extra books. The. Um, Roman Catholic, which is, I mean, I don't know, who's Eastern Orthodox around here? Roger, maybe, and he lives in Baton Rouge. So, is there an Eastern Orthodox church that's not in Baton Rouge? It's a Greek Orthodox. What's that? It's a Greek, Orthodox. Greek Orthodox? Oh, well, we got it's something. Yeah, they're not coming from over there. I think Roger actually had to, like, fly in a Russian Orthodox guy to pastor his church. It was a wild moment. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> so... The Roman Catholics have these extra books. We'll call them the apocrypha, apocryphal books. Um, The Roman Catholics themselves won't call them apocryphal. They'll call them deuterocanonical. Ooh, it just means second canon, okay? Deuterocanonical means second canon books because they're recognized as, as canonical at a later Time. Now, these were written down by the Jews between 430 BC and around AD 40. Um, First and Second Maccabees is an example of some of these. That's probably the most commonly referenced one. I would think it would be First and Second Maccabees. Um, but here's the problem. <laughs> the Apocrypha itself discredits it. <laughs> the Apocrypha, within its own writings, discredits itself as not being prophetic, not being the words of God. And if you want the references, we won't go to them right now. But First Maccabees chapter 4, verses 41 through 46, makes it very clear that the writers did not consider themselves to be... Um, Prophetic or canonical in their writings, which is very different than the way Paul talked because Paul said remember take my writings and them other scriptures. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. These guys obviously did not now they also contain some clear factual errors. I won't get into those things and then the Roman Catholics officially recognized the, um, the apocryphal books in 1546. Why is that significant, David, Mr. Riley? Why is it important that the Roman Catholics decided that the Apocrypha was canon in 1546? Shocker! The Reformation's been firing on all cylinders for like 30 years, and the Roman Catholics said, "Hey, we got we got They're pointing out some serious problems in our theology. We gotta fix this quick. So they quickly. Canonized some additional books that supported the heretical views that they had on a handful of different things. It was wild. Sure they, were differentiated. they were they were what? Differentiated. differentiated. I thought you said appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear very well. So anyway, there's a lot of issues with those things. That one is the, in my opinion, the kill shot. If we're going to be completely honest, they were canonized after the Reformation had been rolling for years. Why? Well, because they had to be able to shore up and defend themselves against some things. Um, the historian Jerome claimed that they were edifying but not for establishing of the authority of the doctrines of the church. Now, <clears throat> look, there is some cool historical moments that happens in the Apocrypha. Like, go read First and Second Maccabees. Those dudes were bad, okay? Like, go, if you just want to read some fun Jewish history stuff... Go check it out. It's it's entertaining. It's not scripture, and if you might be tempted to view it as scripture because maybe you were brought up in a Roman Catholic church, you know, just be careful and maybe read it with your pastor, or with some friends, or things like that. Um, if you want a few recommendations on some different things, Tobit is a fun story. Um, Susanna and Bell and the Dragon—that's added to Daniel actually after the fact—is um, also like it's read more like a detective stories, you know, from back in the day. Um, first and Second Maccabees uh, is. An understanding of the origins of the Feast of Dedication. You know, there's all kinds of different cool things that you can kind of go into and look at. Um, And it came upon a midnight clear. You know that song? It came upon. Yeah, that song. Oh, thank you. Um, That's actually based on an apocryphal work. Yeah, it's based on the wisdom of Solomon, which is an apocryphal book. Now, uh, one more thing before we wrap this bad boy up here Um, Is the canon closed? Let's think through that question together. Is the canon closed? Well, let's go back to the qualifiers of um, what it is to be a canon. What what are the qualifiers? It was apostolic, right? Which means what? That An apostle wrote it, or it was closely affiliated to an apostle. Um, It was universally recognized, okay? And what was the third one? Do you all remember? Orthodox. Orthodox, that's right. All right, so... According to those qualifications that were held by the New Testament um, council that came together and decided what these books would be, is it possible for any new books to be added? Why? Because there's no more apostles. Now, hold on. Hold on. Because Joseph Smith came on the scene and he was like, bro, I'm an apostle and I'm pretty sure there's a few blocks away from here that also calls himself an apostle. So, what, what, what do we mean? So we have to be... See, this is where folks get into trouble. They're like, well, I mean, we, uh, people can be apostles nowadays. No, they can't. Why? Because apostle means sent one. Sent by who? Sent by Jesus. I can be sent by Jesus. Mm-mm. No, that's not apostolos. Apostolos means sent by a person in the flesh. So <laughs> they're sent by the Spirit. Yeah, not Jesus in the flesh. See, we have to draw this distinction. We have to. Who commissioned Paul? Jesus. Jesus showed up flesh and blood and said, Hey, Paul, why do you persecute me? Right? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. He was there, and then he said, And now you got a new job. Now you got a new job. You're going to go and hustle and do your thing. So to be an apostle means that you are commissioned by Jesus. In the flesh. Now Jesus has ascended and he will not return until a later date. So what does that mean? That means that the canon is closed. So anybody who comes up to you and says, well, you can add some... Nope. Mm Mm-mm. Canon is shut down and we're waiting for Jesus to come back as well. All right. That's it for today. Um, We'll get back together tomorrow. Oh, let me tell you all about my next class. Okay. So the next class that we're going to go into is going to be a deep dive on biblical parenting. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that the whole first class is going to be based on one word, Um, and you can find that one word in Ephesians chapter six, verse four. Okay, Ephesians chapter six, verse four. I won't tell you which one it is. So, but we're gonna we're gonna jump in there, and I think that if we can get this one word drilled into our brains, well. It's going to change everything about the way that we look for, look for forward generations and how we live for them and how we do all these different things. So next class is going to be on that. Let me pray, and then we're done. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you've given us an opportunity to hear and heed your word. I pray that you would transform us by the power of your grace and help us to continue to follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all in a few minutes.